Welcome to the Materialist Podcast special winter solstice episode. This is Nigel, Public Archaeology Coordinator with the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region. It's just me here today on this special episode, and actually I'm recording this on December 21st, which is the winter solstice. The interview that will follow this with archaeologist Dr. Janessa Mahar was intended to be released way back on the summer solstice in June. Becky and I had every intention to release this as sort of a ode to the historically and culturally important sort of annual transitional moment that is the summer solstice and in celebration of summer funtivities and gatherings. But obviously the time and the turmoil that was this summer um, and con- we continued to be in the pandemic, it just didn't fit the theme that we were going for. And so we chose to table the episode for another day. And today is that other day as it is the winter solstice and we are approaching another time of people getting together, hopefully not in large groups, not indoors, (laughs) smaller groups getting together and having some kind of feast and recognition of community and family. Dr. Janessa Mahar is an archaeologist and currently the anthropology librarian at the University of Florida. I had the pleasure of meeting Janessa some years ago when I assisted her on a few projects she worked on in pursuit of her PhD, which she completed in 2019. The part of the interview I'm going to play for y'all next is where Dr. Mahar discusses her work at the Shell Mound site in Cedar Key in Levy County. It's believed that Shell Mound was a gathering place for Native Americans for many, many hundreds of years with significant and notable ceremonial gatherings on and around the summer solstice. This evidence the material culture that has been recovered in support of this sort of ceremonial feasting and gathering event theory, well, is just super cool and actually completely related as well to the unique physical environment that Shell Mound is built on. Anyways, here's Janessa. So let's start with why people would gather on parabolic dunes. Um, so again, this, a lot of this research, like you said, comes out of um, Ken Sasson's work at the University of Florida. He has the Laboratory of Southeastern Archaeology. Uh, many graduate students, including myself, have, have been able to work on this, this larger project. So um, what Ken was noticing in um, the archaeological record along the, the Florida Gulf Coast is all these parabolic dunes, these large dunes that were formed you know, thousands of years ago, right? So these are not anything recent that we're dealing with here. But what was happening is that the dunes formed along an axis. So the predominant winds being from the northeast, low sands from a high sand deposit down to the southwest. And so what you get is this arcuate shape, right? With the apex, you know, just think of like your, your finger and thumb, that shape. That's the shape of a parabolic dune. It's a large horseshoe shape. Um, so that apex, so where your thumb and your forefinger meet, you know, that is pointing up to the northeast while the arms of that parabolic dune are pointing down to the southwest. It just so happens when these parabolic dunes were formed, the predominant wind direction forming these was also lines up with the, the angle of the rising summer solstice sun and the setting winter solstice sun. So that in and of itself is, is a chance of fate. The time period in which these dunes were formed just 
occurred at that particular angle for this particular region. That's not always the case globally. It's not going to be always the case through time either as wind patterns change, as geological formations change. So these two things sort of, you know, synchronize together in this particular region. Why is that significant? Why does it matter that, you know, these uh, these dune ridges or dune arms actually align, you know, with the, the rising summer solstice sun and the setting winter solstice sun. Well, the summer solstice, June 21st, it's the longest day of the year, right? The winter solstice is the shortest day of the year. Mm -hmm. um, so when you think about it, um, for a group of people that keep track of time and space, I apps on their phone, but indications from their, their lived environment. Um, so the rising and setting of the sun, um, you know, they're noticing the longest day. They're noticing the shortest day. You know, keeping track of celestial movements of uh, the planets, the stars, you know, sh you know, sailors have done it for millennia. Uh, people have done this way before we, you know, had any sort of asynchronous keeping of time, like with clocks, calendars. Um, their calendar was the sun and stars and the moon. So really what, what we're looking at is, um, you know, keeping track of these celestial movements is a way for people to organize themselves. Instead of like, hey, I'll meet you next Thursday, you're saying, I'll see you on the longest day of the year. We all know when that is, when that's going to come about, what that looks like, um, how to orient ourselves, um, how to travel that far. We can travel, our, you know, plan our travel according to the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, the sky is like a giant calendar. These are lived experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so it would, it would naturally make sense to organize your events, you know, around these particular times at which everybody can identify when it's going to happen. Um, all you have to do is look up, right? <laughs> but you can't just look up in a blank space. You've got to be able to orient space with time. So the spatial manifestation, essentially, of these celestial movements we see right there on the ground in these parabolic dunes was also telling them where to be, not just when to be. And so, you know, the, the earliest evidence that we see that these parabolic dunes are important places of, of gathering really during the late archaic time period. So during the late archaic period was about four or 5,000 years ago, sea level, you know, where it is right now, maybe a little bit lower, but stabilized to, to be about where it is now, you know, within you know, a meter or two, right? So we, we first see the occupation or the, the use of these parabolic dunes during the later archaic period, and they're being used as cemeteries. So the distal ends of these parabolic dunes, we're seeing late archaic burials. And like we were talking about before, the positioning of these parabolic dunes, if you're standing on one, the sun will set in the winter time right along that dune arm, and you can see it just disappear into the water. You know, sun setting, funerals, mortuary traditions, death. There are many cross-cultural traditions where we see the sun set and water being related to death and burial and burial traditions. So again, this is not um, not to say like all human cultures are the same, but it's, it's a common theme. We have experienced some sea level rise during that time. Many times we're seeing that the, the primary interments of these later cemeteries are actually being um, dug up and then buried further back and then reinterred higher up along that parabolic dune. What these parabolic dunes are also providing is some refuge from, from rising seas, whether it's uh, higher tidal cycles. Um, you know, throughout the year, high tide will fluctuate. You know, during the winter, you'll get more extreme tides. You'll get your lowest lows and your highest highs in many areas. So even, you know, or storm surge events, you know, the 
um, El Ninos or um, hurricane season, things like that, you'll get higher than normal high tides. And so sometimes these parabolic dunes are providing respite from essentially rising seas, whether it's just temporary during a seasonal fluctuation or the normal tidal cycle. Um, and then eventually, you know, with sea level rise and they're not able to go back to these locations. So before Shell Mound actually became what we're, we're calling a civic ceremonial center, and I can, I can talk about those too, there was a burial mound there. Um, the burial mound is known as Palmetto Mound and Palmetto Mound is at the end of a parabolic dune ridge. The only thing that is a little bit different um, in this particular setup is that the end of this parabolic dune is now cut off by water. And so Palmetto Mound has become an island, island that's just right off of the location of Shell Mound. But Shell Mound itself, the mount, you know, where, where Shell Mound was sort of um, started on this parabolic dune ridge, that is the same connected arm as you know, where Palmetto Mound is, this, this burial mound that predates Shell Mound by God, almost 800 years. It's cool to think about the kind of serendipity of these, you know, dune ridges and like how, you know, there's all these things that have nothing to do with people, of how these things kind of formed. And then people utilize this natural landscape for this very like, you know, sacred and very culturally kind of constructed way of living and doing all these activities. Right. And like, um, we think about it where it's, yeah, like serendipity, like, uh, you know, what's the fortunate event? But I mean, we've all, we've all sort of been to places that speak to us in particular ways, whether it's like a memory from our childhood, you know, and that's like in the most like, you know, I guess bland terms where, you know, what mountains might mean to you and the cultural traditions of your ancestors or what the sea might mean and, and, and things along those lines. But we also are, you know, humans are amazing at detecting patterns, right? Mm-hmm. So it's our, not only our, our ability to detect patterns, but our reliance upon patterns for security. So, you know, I, I always bring up the example of like, you can walk into a Target anywhere in the United States and you know exactly where to go to find what you're looking for. You know, we tend to design our spaces in familiar ways. You know, you can walk into almost any house in the United States and kind of get an understanding of where the bathroom might be, right? Or the kitchen might be located (laughs) because you're making sense of those spaces. We do it for the built environment all the time, but I think that we have gotten away from the fact that we also do it for what we would consider the, the natural environment. You know, we're reading into places and spaces all the time. And so certainly, you know, people who are living along the, the Gulf Coast thousands of years ago, they're, they're seeing these landscapes over and over. They're, you know, they've got a long tradition of being there or they've got a long tradition of hearing about these spaces or other spaces that make sense to them. Not saying that, you know, it's the same people who lived there for thousands and thousands of years, but certainly the the way that we interpret spaces, even before we've made them our own and built a house or, or you know, cleared some land, it spoke to us in some way. Just like building of houses, there's a foundation, right? And so each generation is going to be leaving a foundation. And so even if within, you know, hundreds of years, obviously the same people aren't living in the same place, that foundation has been set with each generation. And so people are building on it and expanding on it? Right. Like, I mean, we, we think about it from an archaeological point of view, like you go out and you do survey and you're looking for certain things that are going to tell you that there's an archaeological site there. Like, you know, for instance, on the coast, we've been told this, you know, our, our entire careers, Florida soils are really acidic. They can support all kinds of different variations in, you know, vegetation. Um, so like certain plants need more basic soils. You can be able to, you know, you, you can find archeological sites that have shell 
um, if you look up to the trees instead of looking down on the ground, like if there's cedars, there's probably a shellnet in there. So we, we look at all sorts of cues, you know, in our environment to be able to see the, um, you know, past activities, you know, what, it, how does the vegetation there change? Is it indigenous vegetation or is it, you know, um, stuff that likes disturbed soils, blah, blah, blah. So we're looking for these, um, these cues in our, in our world, but from, for a very different reason than people, you know, thousands of years ago might have looked for, for cues also. Um, so, you know, for certain, the people who were living at Shell Mound were well aware of the burial mounds that were there before, even if it was not culturally connected to them. They know what these things look like on the landscape. They're using them as navigation markers or using them as, um, you know, pit stops, um, you know, places of, you know, like, um, you know, uh, of navigation, essentially. So reference points. Um, so it might have been that there was, you know, activity there 4,000 years ago and there was a cemetery there and that place might be avoided where, you know, we have evidence that, you know, a lot of later archaic cemeteries were avoided by populations that came in later. Um, you know, they were interring their dead in those same locations. They were sort of maybe revered or, you know, just given their space um, because of the powers that could be there, the, the strength of those other cultures and those other peoples and agents and presences. That's not always the case. Uh, it's just, you know, one example of not reutilizing a space, but it also points out that they know it's there, especially where another site could be located within like 100 meters of it. So, you know, there's, I think someone, someone said at some point, you know, we've always been archaeologists. I like to think of us, you know, we've always been scientists. You know, human beings are really good at making observations uh, about their the world around them. How they interpret that is, is subject to a lot of mm. different cultural influences, for sure. But we're really aware of these things. They're important. You know, like I remember as a kid, like we would go to certain places in town, like, <clears throat> like the relic buildings and things like that, because there was this intrigue about what had happened there, the stories of the people who are, are no longer walking down those halls. So I think that we are, we're drawn to these places too, places gathered. I think that's so interesting to think about, and especially with the those patterns of kind of natural landscapes, what you're talking about, in a way it's almost like some of these places, they have to end up being something important or sacred. It's like, you know, creator made these patterns of places and that it just shows us we need to use this for, you know, this sort of a ceremony because why else would this landscape be here if, if not for that? Absolutely. I mean, we're, um, you know, to take it out of Florida for a hot second, we, you know, people who were like researching Stonehenge for lo the longest time, they only focused on the rocks. They only focused on the things that, you know, were constructed that people built up. While that's an amazing feat, why the hell is it there? You know, like why, why that place? Why that location? You know, and they start digging around and doing, you know, massive quantities of geophysical surveys and everything else. And they're starting to find there are major, major reasons why Shell Mount, uh, why, sorry, Stonehenge <laughs> is, you know, there's a, a rock outcropping there that the, you know, the water produces this like really beautiful hot pink stone. Wow. So like pink river right near um, Stonehenge that the underlying, um, you know, like geomorphology, like there's, there's something in the soils there that make it a hotbed for like lightning activity. Wow. Uh, there are like certain, yeah, there's like these certain geographic features that point to like, this was a significant place for a long time, way before somebody erected, you know, some stones on that location. Again, like we're, humans are really good at detecting patterns. We're really good at detecting anomalies. Um, so when you know, you've ever walked into a place or to a, a particular space and you've got goosebumps, you felt something different, something was up and you maybe couldn't put your finger on it. 
Maybe you can, you know, if you were able to spend enough time there and, and try to understand why. But sometimes these things aren't necessarily explainable as to why we get that, you know, that rushed or chilled feeling. But spaces have power. I think that they have, they have agency, they have presence. They're, we're not the only ones that are in charge of our actions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, spaces direct our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't just climb anywhere you want over the top of a mountain. You've got to follow a certain path. You know, the, the mountain will guide you over it. So yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot going on and, and certainly a lot that we don't, we don't give ourselves enough credit for as, you know, humans of this planet. We are not, you know, separate from the, the, the natural world. We're part of it. Um, yeah. We might have gotten a little dusty <laughs> when it comes to, to thinking in those terms, though. Besides the massive pile of mostly oyster and clamshells, that is Shell Mound, what other evidence, physical evidence, back to archaeology, have you found that kind of suggests that groups of people were coming from far and wide to this really significant place? That's a good question with like a lot of layers to it too. Um, so well, I'm really good at that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Here's some um, ambiguous question that you can't possibly right? answer. In the time <laughs> well, no. So, um, okay. So, so, well, let's, let's start maybe a little bit before Shell Mound. So going back to Palmetto Mound. So we know that Palmetto Mound, which is on the distal end of the same parabolic dune arm that Shell Mound is on, right? So these are related in space. They're related in time to a certain extent also, but they're related in space. Spatially, you can see, you know, Palmetto Mound from Shell Mound and the reverse, right? So if you're standing at the apex of Shell Mound and you're watching the winter uh, solstice sunset into the Gulf Coast before that, you know, golden orb sets into the waters, it's going to pass right behind Palmetto Mound. So you're watching as the sun sets right in this very burial mound. Um, so again, there's this perfect alignment between these two places. So before Shelmo was actually constructed, Palmetto Mound was like hopping. It was a really, really uh, highly active place for internments, starting about, I think it was about 400 BC, but I will double check. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's right. So about 800 years before Shell Mound um, becomes the super duper activity, you know, space that it is. So the people who were actually interned in Palmetto Mound, like you said, Palmetto Mound has been heavily looted. There's barely anything left there. It was looted all, you know, in the 1800s, essentially. Many of the pots have been um, donated to museums throughout the state of Florida and farther afield up the Peabody Museum and and Harvard. The Smithsonian probably has a a chunked American Museum of Natural History all over the place. The bodies, a lot of the bodies, the bones of the people that were interned there are actually uh, now at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Oh, how convenient. Museum, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so um, we, we do have a lot of the, the objects and individuals uh, that were in the mound. Unfortunately, they're no longer in their final resting place or what they thought was going to be their final resting place. What we have found out, we know that these folks are not always local, right? So these, these are people who are coming in from all over the greater Southeast. So even before that, earlier than Palmetto Mound, we know that people are moving far and wide all over the eastern United States. So I like to joke and just call it like our first evidence of snowbirds, essentially. So <laughs> there are folks that are coming down and they're, they're, sometimes they're passing away here in Florida, but maybe not. Some of the burials at Palmetto Mound are secondary burials, meaning that that person probably died somewhere else and their body was partially processed. And then they were, their bones essentially were interred into Palmetto Mound. So beyond that, we also have a lot of non-local objects interred in Palmetto Mound. So 
you know, things like um, mica and galena um, and, and crystal that are just not common, you know, uh, to find here. Um, so, and a lot of the pots are non-local too. So, um, prior to Shell Mound, we know there's a long history of people coming to this location from far and wide. So, there was historical precedent, essentially. So, even before Shell Mound, you know, is constructed, there is historical precedent for people coming in from diverse locations to this particular spot. So, uh, so then, you know, Shell Mound essentially isn't constructed till about 400 AD. So um, during this time, Palmetto Mound is still sort of being used, but not as heavily as before. Um, so we don't have as many dates from Palmetto Mound that indicate that it was a major activity area like Shell Mound was. It seems that the focus of the gatherings switched from being at Palmetto Mound to being at Shell Mound. From 400 AD until about 650 AD, Shell Mound comes into fruition. So we do have very early dates, like some later archaic dates, suggesting that, that um, people were active on that parabolic dune arm before Shellman was constructed, mm -hmm. but not a lot of dates you know, from uh, between the later archaic period until you know, again, 400 AD. So, you know, so this, this really concentrated 250 years saw the creation of the Shell Mound site that we know today, which was this, um, you know, currently stands as this Arcuate Ridge, which is the exact opposite formation of a parabolic dune. So Shell Mound itself looks just like a parabolic dune. It's that horseshoe-shaped configuration, only it is completely versed uh, 180. The reversal is just probably as significant as the, the parabolic dunes themselves. Mm -hmm. so again, you can stand on the apex of you know the, of Shell Mound and watch the summer or the winter sun set over Palmetto Mound. You know, reverse. You can stand at the apex and you can see the summer um, rising solstice uh, sun come right over you know that apex of Shell Mound and sort of light up the two arms of Shell Mound. So it's during this time that we, we start to see these massive pits being entered into the, um, the, the arms, essentially, or the interior edges of the, the shell configuration at Shell Mound. You know, for the rest of the site, it looks like there was probably, you know, shovel testing has shown some light activity around the edges of the, uh, the shell arc configuration. The plaza, the interior of the, the arc of Shell Mound is very, you know, it's, it's basically absent of, of artifactual materials. It looked like there was a lot of activity there at all. Um, there are a couple of small sand mounds um, in relation to the, the shell arc itself. Um, one of these, a couple of those are burial mounds um, that we know they're burial mounds, either from former investigations um, or are just, you know, nipping at the edge to see the, the stratigraphy. Um, there's one uh, sand mound at the mouth of the arcuate shape that has not been investigated. It could be a mound, it could be something of a push pile, we haven't touched it. If it is a barrel mound, we wanna keep it that way. So there's a lot of busy things going on at this site and all of this sort of takes about 250 years. There's only a couple of generations to be able to create. The interior edges of the shell ridge are the, the busiest place for these large pits um, that we were uncovering. These pits are often over a meter in diameter, up to almost two meters deep. So these are massive, massive pits. Um, you know, when you know, in in contrast, when you're when you're digging other archaeological sites, like I've worked at uh, other sites that weren't wasn't you know a civic ceremonial center, trash pits um, and pits in general tend to be more shallow and not as wide. These large pits were something to you know pay attention to, essentially. 
uh, they grabbed our attention almost immediately. So uh, when we started excavating these pits um, and processing the materials that we were finding, the size of the pit certainly warranted their investigation. And then we got to the contents of the pit. So like the shell portion of shell mound. So the, what you would call the midden portion, right? That's comprised predominantly of oyster shell, some clam shell, crown conch, whelk, things like that. We don't find a lot of pits interred, you know, in the actual midden part. Sort of this midden is a little bit on top of, and then sometimes the pits are through these midden lenses. Um, so the, the archaeology there is a little bit uh, hard to see at times, but a lot of these pits go right down into the sand substrate that's underneath the, the shell deposit of shell mound. So why are they digging these big pits? What are they putting into these big pits? Well, the, the stuff that we find in the pit fill is very different from the stuff that we've been finding in the shell deposit. So the shell deposit looks like what we call quotidian midden, right? So quotidian meaning daily stuff which is pretty common in coastal archeological sites along Florida, the Southeast, everywhere else. So, you know, oyster is a staple, you know, all the different fishes that are there throughout the year, staple stuff, common things, things that you would still go out to fish for or eat today, um, you know, snails and things like that. <laughs> now the pits um, were starkly, starkly different. Um, so for instance, um, very little shell. Right, so um, the majority of shellfish that they're eating is not being redeposited back into these pits. It's probably just getting added to the, the midden. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> beyond that, there are tremendous amounts of fish bones. We find those also in the in the regular midden. Um, but what we weren't finding in the midden are freshwater fishes. So freshwater fishes are, are showing up in these pits. They're not really showing up in a lot of the the midden deposit. Um, you know, Shell Mound is in a, a coastal salt, salt marsh environment. Um, it's a decent clip away from the, the outflow of the Swanee River, which would be the closest, you know, sort of a large river, freshwater river that was coming out. And there are, you know, plenty of little freshwater tidal creeks um, that come out that tend to be brackish, the close, more, you know, salty the closer they get to the, the actual ocean. So um, freshwater fish were available. They're around, um, but they're just not showing up in the midden part, but they are showing up in the, in the pit features. Also in the pit features, um, a lot of bird bones. We don't get a lot of bird bones um, in the shell midden deposits. You know, the occasional waterfowl and things like that will show up, um, but, but typically not a lot of bird. Yeah, so the, the, the fauna was a little bit different. You know, the lack of shell to get all together. Um, another thing that was, that was really significant about these pits are uh, the types of pottery that we were finding. So um, this was probably one of the first things that was really um, was noticed kind of in the field because a lot of the identification of the animal bones has to happen back in the lab, which takes time. Um, So while we're in the field, we're noticing that the pottery shirts that we were pulling out of these pits, um, these pots were very large. Um, These aren't, you know, it's not a cereal bowl that you're sitting down with one person. Um, These are large vessels and they're large vessels that are probably trying to prepare or contain large quantities of food. The other thing that was uh, notable about these pottery sherds is that these were not your your fancy fair um, sort of dishes. I try to, I I sort of call them the stuff that you would get from Target, right? Like if you're planning a big party and you have 
over, they might walk away with the dish. You're not going to care. Like if it was like, you know, a $2 bowl from Walmart or Target, <laughs> it's not um, you're certainly China. not going to let them walk away with your grandmother's china. Right, right. Yeah. It's like, um, this or, like boiled chafing dish or something that you right, get. Like, right. <laughs> right. Or, you know, for instance, like, um, you know, if it breaks, you don't care. Um, you know, like somebody's a fool, they've had to, you know, they've imbibed too much and they've <laughs> take your punch bowl with them. You're not gonna care if it was just like, you know, something that you just bought for that particular event. So these were things that were put together really quickly. Um, so they were not, you know, the outsides of them were not very well burnished. They weren't, you know, finished to a fine sort of shiny exterior. A lot of times when you burnish the exterior of a vessel is because you might wanna wash it so it's less porous. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, it's going to change the way that you can cook certain foods. So, yeah, so these, these vessels were quite large and they were, ex, you know, expediently put together. Yeah. Um, that sort of indicates something. Um, probably a, um, you're not using these large vessels all the time. There's no reason to reuse them, perhaps. It almost looks like they're creating these large vats of food, having a big party, and then throwing everything right back into a hole, um, you know, the pots included. Um, again, you know, and you start to think about like more, well, why, why not use special vessels? I thought that all rituals, you know, would require some sort of um, special vessel that was made out of a particular clay and had a particular design. Well, not necessarily because, you know, when we talk about feasts or gatherings or rituals, there's a lot of components and parts and not all of which is, you know, ceremonial to the extent that it's got to be special or unique. Sometimes quantity is a good thing too, right? Mm-hmm. Or expediency or, um, you know, the ability to toss it, you know, um, to use it and lose it essentially. And so it seems like, you know, these pots are probably may- be made there or the party. They're not, certainly you're not schlepping that gigantic pot <laughs> from the panhandle in North Florida. There are no draft animals in North America. You'd have to carry that thing yourself. And so to schlep a, a giant pot, you know, a super distance for a party, you know, you know, everyone's done it probably in, in, in you know, um, in the last couple of years, you're going to a party, you want to bring something, you'll get like a fruit tray that's been cut up that already has a big disposable plastic plate that you could just leave there. <laughs> um, you get it locally, you know, you go to the, the store that's closest, so you're not having it in the car the whole ride there. And then when you go, it can stay. Um so there was, you know, a lot of uh, indications early on that these were pits that were related to large gatherings of people. So large pots means large amounts of food. Um, large amounts of food means large amounts of people. Quick pots probably means that they're not being brought in from other locations. They're being there. They're ready at hand. Um, there's something that could just be put together. And then you don't even have to do the dishes afterwards. Um, you just dump that whole thing back into the, the trash pit, essentially. Um, Sounds like a Super Bowl party. Hey, yeah, it's one of those things where um, when I was teaching students, I sort of likened it to, um, you know, you know what, you know, uh, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium looks like <laughs> after a Gator Bowl or something yeah. like, you know, you've been to a college stadium, you've been to a, uh, you've been to a concert, um, you've been to a 4th of July fireworks party. Um, you know, what happens at the end? There's a lot of garbage, um, a lot of disposable stuff. And that's sort of what we were seeing. Another reason as to, you know, well, why, why the summer solstice and why not the winter solstice? So mm-hmm. for instance, if there was a burial mound there for so long, why weren't they, uh, you know, why weren't these feasts timed with the winter setting sun because they were there commemorating, um, you know, funerals essentially. 
um, well, what shell mound looks like um, because of the timing. Well, how do we know essentially that um, these are, you know, rituals or feasts or gatherings related to the summer solstice and not the winter solstice? So the smoking gun essentially for us was the funnel analysis. So Josh Goodwin, who was a master's student in University of Florida, he wanted to focus on the fact that we were finding these bird bones um, in these in these large feasting pits. And again, bird bones are, are very rare in quotidian midden. And that a little bit further, he took the bones to uh, Dave Stedman, who's an ornithologist at the Florida Museum of Natural History. And he pointed out that many of these um, juvenile, uh, many of these white ibis bones that we were finding in these pits were not adults, but they were juveniles. Um, and juveniles not in plumage, but in the way that their bones had not yet used. So this is, I mean, this is tremendous for archaeology. I mean, radiocarbon dating can get us to within like a couple hundred years of when something happened, 50 yeah. years of when something happened. Um, there's a range of error. Um, so we call that like the hour hand, essentially. Um, but, you know, we're able to get to the minute hand at Shell Mound, which is something that is really surprising, and which is season. There are seasonality studies on a number of different types of animals. So on shellfishes and, and uh, in, in different uh, migratory uh, animals as well. So fishes and birds, you know, so we, we can infer season from a lot of the other evidence that we have. But um, many times you'll be digging in it and you'll find evidence of both summer occupancy and winter occupancy or, you know, all, you know, well, four seasons is sort of um, silly <laughs> to talk about in Florida. We've got two. Um, so, um, but finding these, um, these juvenile white ibis bones was the real solid indicator that we were looking at summer solstice pits, summer solstice gatherings. The reason being is that migratory colonial nesting birds like the ibis, they only have babies once a year and they only have babies in the spring. And those babies, bones, uh, don't properly fuse until about June or thereafter, late June. So if they begin to nest and um, lay eggs in March, those, um, you know, those juvenile ibises, are, their bones start to fuse right around the time period of the summer solstice. Um, so this was a huge revelation um, because many of the other civic ceremonial centers that are along the Gulf Coast, such as Crystal River, which is south of Shell Mound, and Garden Patch, which is north of Shell Mound, um, they have overwhelming evidence that the majority of activity is happening there in the winter. Um, so looking at Shell Mound, it's a complete outlier. I mean, it's an outlier for a, a lot of other reasons. Uh, there's no platform mound at Shell Mound. So it's sort of an atypical civic ceremonial center to begin with. So the fact that we had summer parties here and not winter parties, maybe that makes sense. Um, you know, these people are moving around the landscape and different places are used for, for different events, perhaps. And so this could be part of a larger, um, you know, cyclical pattern that we're seeing and in, um, in utilizing different spaces for, for different reasons, different communities coming together at different times of the year. And again, we don't know if they were coming to Shell Mound every year. It could have been, you know, super annual where it was only, you know, every, you know, three, seven years, maybe it coincided with other particular events, celestial events. But again, like, you know, there, the amount of pits that we can estimate over well over 600 to 700 pits were probably excavated into Shell Mound. Um, which is quite a lot. So there was a, a number of gatherings over a 250-year period. So, the, the, I mean, the significance of, of gathering in the summertime, so from ethnohistoric research, um, we know that Native American groups east of the Mississippi, and especially those in the southeast, 
um, they do do have a, you know, the green corn ritual. So like, you know, um, Mm. ceremonies commemorating world renewal, essentially. And so, um, you know, of historians talking with Native American groups living in the Southeast and and Eastern United States. So in these, um, in the ontology of these Native American groups, there's a tripartite world scheme, right? You have the upper world, the middle world, and the lower world. The middle world was constructed through the efforts of the folks from the upper world and the folks from the lower world. And I say folks because they're not always human agents. Mm-hmm. So in many, many creation mythologies of Native Americans, you there is a story that involves a bird so enlisting the assistance of a liminal creature, a, a creature that occupies multiple worlds. So like an otter that can go both on land or in the water, crayfish, turtles, um, there's always some sort of um, animal that can be in these two worlds at the same time, fluidly. Um, and so, like, the bird comes and says, hey, will you help me build this middle world? And they, you know, bring up the muck from the sea, and then the earth has been created. And so, and, and Josh Goodwin and, and all the folks who have been working on this stuff, and then myself, um, you know, through these these inferences of, of using the, the histories that we know of through, through the ethnohistoric record, um, and looking at the archaeological evidence, um, you can make these these sort of connections or these inferences about why, you know, why was summer important at Shell Mound? Why was um, the summer solstice important besides just a good time to get together um, to have a summer party? Um, on the Gulf Coast, that seems a little rough. Um, <laughs> we know how hot it gets out there. The, the summer solstice, it's, it is the longest day of the year, right? So it is, um, it, but it's marking essentially the time in which the world is going into um, the period of darkness, right? So harvest festivals are similar to this, where it's like um, you are sort of gathering together to rejoice actually in the darker forces of the planet. They're not scary things like, you know, like Halloween we've made into like a scary thing with the monsters and the ghouls. Um, But really it's a time for the world to rest after it's been producing for so long, you know, that summer season, the spring, um, even producing your last harvest is in the autumn. Um, so the world is tired. Uh, it's been giving forth life and, and so much life, it needs a period of rejuvenation and rest. And so as the world enters into the, the dark period, which is the time after the summer solstice, as our days get shorter and keep getting shorter until the winter solstice, mm-hmm. um, the earth is sleeping, the earth is resting, um, it's rejuvenating itself and it's doing a lot of that time, um, you know, in the water, the the you know, the water being the the source of, um, you know, I think Ken Sassman had written that it was a, a source of future time. Um, Charles Hudson was a historian who did a lot of work on Southeast Native American groups. Um, and so uh, really the, the time for the world to renew itself is, is, is a critical time. It's a critical moment, almost like a spring equinox or something like that as well. And so the world is renewing itself, but people, populations are also renewing themselves. You know, what are the, the main reasons that any human ever gets together with other humans? You've got weddings, funerals, and births. Um, <laughs> and so you can't have those things um, without people getting together and without, you know, some travel involved. And you certainly aren't going to have births unless people are getting together. And so certainly you've got both biological reproduction and cultural reproduction playing a role here. So this is an opportunity for people to get together, um, to see old friends. Maybe there is a birth, there is a death, you're trading information, you're reaffirming social ties. 
Um, you know, perhaps there's some marriages, some weddings that are going on during that time as well. So you're securing social affiliation with other groups. Um, you know, you're making sure that culturally you are passing on traditions to your children. You're ingratiating them into that. Um, this is, you know, the gathering food that we eat. This is the foods that are important. These are the pots that are important. This is how you make, you know, these particular technologies to be able to have this sort of party. Um, you know, there's like there's protocols, cultural protocols in hosting a party like this or, you know, how you act or, um, you know, what you bring. And so all of those things can happen only when we're constantly attending to those rites and rituals, only when we're coming. Um, so again, you have biological and cultural reproduction happening, you know, at the same space and same time. And it's happening in light of the world doing the same thing. I mean, we're all agents of this, you know, sort of lived experience. So yeah, so summer parties at Shell Mound. Um, <laughs> we got to start up the, the tradition again. We'll just start going. Gotta, maybe not eating baby ibis, but they might be. <laughs> I'll, I'll chow on an ibis. <laughs> yeah, and so and that's the thing too. Like, were they eating the baby ibis? Um, you know, Josh would eat a baby and, ibis. Um, <laughs> and, the, um, and the colleagues that he was working with. So again, you know, like uh, you know, Dave Stedman from the museum. You know, birds are used in all sorts of different types of rituals, and so. Yeah. It's just, it's not always for their meat, but sometimes it's for their plumage or their other body parts. And so quite often you will find it's just the wings that you find in, in ritual, right. right? And so the wings are symbolic. They, these things could have been items of regalia. They could have been, of course, not saying that they weren't eating them. I mean, because you're not going to waste, you know, all the nice, you know, <laughs> or something, but um, it could be that, you know, bodies are often disarticulated and they're used for different purposes. And so you, it could have been that the ibis, I mean, they weren't, you know, you have to go out to a rookery to get these baby ibises. They are not, you know, in trees at Shellman. You've got to get into a boat and you've got to go off to one of the distal islands to be able to even get to one of these nests. And then you've got to get up into the nests. Um, and so this was hard. It was hard for them to, to go and get these things. They've got plenty of other food resources. Um, speaking of Richard's Island, which is, a, you know, the, the fish trap that's, you know, two clicks south of, of Shell Mound that is contemporaneous with Shell Mound. You know, they're building fish traps. They're harvesting oysters. They've got a plethora of food. They don't need to eat the baby ibises to be able to survive. But those baby ibises were probably important for, for other reasons as well. So maybe it's the color of their plumage. You know, certainly there, there are cross-cultural examples of like... Um, Juvenile plumage, of course, we know is different from adult plumage, and male plumage is often different from female plumage. And so, you know, the, the sex of the birds could play a part of that, and the age of the bird plays a part of that as well. And so it could be that part of the world renewal ceremony, um, and there's the, the baby ibises, and they're only around at this particular time, that they were somehow in time and space connected to these particular rituals. And so they were critical for... Um, you know, the, the tradition that was being um, created and recreated, you know, in this place and time. And so, you know, maybe it was the plumage itself, maybe it was the wings, maybe they were being used in, in some other manner. We're, we're not, we, the archaeological record is not, you know, detailed enough for us to be able to those awesome questions. But certainly, you know, we can, we can infer or imagine or compare um, with, with other cultures and other known locations and, and try to come up with at least a couple of, of possibilities um, as to why they're there. Mm -hmm. um, 
Hopefully it was just, yeah, just a bunch of roasted baby. Ice. <laughs> it might be delicious. Dude, this is sounding, this is sounding even tender. more, yeah, this is like even more like tailgating. Like you've got like yeah. disposable, like bowls and cups and plates. You've got like yeah. chicken wings, like get some hot right. sauce on those baby ibises. Like yes. they're probably delicious. So kind of piggybacking on that, like when you're looking at like, I mean, you do a lot of work as well with the contemporary communities in the Cedar Key area. So, I mean, they're, I'm sure they're not eating like baby ibises, but do you <laughs> see any like parallels between the way that people celebrate with food in Cedar Key today and what people were doing in the past, like what Native people were doing? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I think there is, you know, there's these, uh, these, maybe you would call them ephemeral connections. Um, but I don't know. I, I think, again, like as, as spaces and places, um, you know, sort of give us, you know, goosebumps or, you know, they, they feel a special way. Um, there are, um, I guess, themes to certain places almost like, you know, for instance, you know, there was like just tons of mullet deposited mm-hmm. in the pits at Shell Mound. Um, by the score. I mean, they're just feasting on mullet in addition to many other fishes, but mullet predominate um, all of these pits. Mullet are still the fish for gathering in Cedar Key today and along the, the Florida Gulf Coast. Um, whenever there's a seafood festival in Florida, you're going to find mullet. There's mullet in particular. And this is not just a coastal phenomenon. It's, you know, on the interior as well. So anybody who's been to a spring or a stream in Florida has probably been fish, you know, swimming with mullet. You know, they're able to live in both freshwater and saltwater. Um, I, I'm fascinated with mullet for, you know, from an archaeological perspective, from a people perspective, um, because of these things. And I think that, like, a lot of, you know, how I see uh, mullet in archaeological record and its relationship to the people who are eating that mullet, I do definitely see those connections today, too. So, you know, mullet, why are mullet the fish for gathering? A, they're schooling fish. Um, right. And so they come in these massive schools, you throw out a net, you, you know, it's like, it's like fish in a bucket. almost. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Um, so yeah, so it's, they're, they're very easy to capture. I mean, as long as you know how to throw a cast net and throughout the state mullet are, you know, um, speared. Um, so, you know, those little tridents and, and things like leisters, um, people will spear mullet mostly in the springs and streams in Florida, but you won't see them being speared out on the coast, right? They're just not as um, sort of condensed. On the coast, you often see mullet being captured with cast nets or seine nets. And I think that by and large, uh, you know, seine nets were, were likely used during the time of Shell Mound, as well as fish trap features. So there, there is archaeological precedent for, for mullet being around for a long time, but once mass capture fishing technologies were, were being used, you know, they're targeting mullet, they're targeting schools of fishes. So you can you can process mullet pretty quickly also. They're not like a ladyfish that's all bony where it's just really super hard to fillet. Yeah. Um, they're also not, they don't get very large like black drum would where it's just a little bit you know, more difficult and unwieldy to handle. Another thing about, you know, not like it's impossible, of course, but, um, but they're nice. They're a good solid size, like one mullet, you know, one sandwich fills a person up. Another thing about mullet is that they're very oily fish. And so because they're an oily fish, they preserve extremely well. And so a lot of, you know, when you're driving in these, along these country roads, along the Gulf coast of Florida, you're often going to see somebody out there with a cooler hawking, you know, smoked mullet on the side of the road. 
mullet preserves really well. It could be salted also. Um, but I think there's a number of reasons why it's a good fish for gathering. A, you could feed a lot of people at once because you can catch them in mass. They could be processed pretty quickly. They could be smoked. So you can even give them away as party favors. So your guests, can, <laughs> you know, hands empty. They can take some smoked mullet for the road on their way back home, especially yeah. if home um, is rather far and could be right. a you know, week journey. So, you know, mullet are these fish that have these affordances for, for large gatherings of people. There's never going to be leftovers. You can send folks home with it. They're not going to spoil um, in the sun or something like that. And I think that we're seeing these um, affordances being capitalized on in the archaeological past, too. So, for, you know, for instance, at Shell Mound, you know, summer's not the time to go fishing for mullet. Everybody will tell you um, in Florida today, you wait for the mullet run, and that's going to be. So, you know, mullet spend a lot of their time inshore and up in streams and springs. They're in freshwater a lot of the time. And so they spend the majority of the year there, but they have to spawn in saltwater. And so that's when they go out and they'll spawn, they'll reproduce out on the Gulf Coast um, in the fall and in the winter. Um, so really what happens is like mullet are, are, you know, hold up a lot in the springs and streams and then they all exit and they go out into the, the ocean water. I think that's a critical point in sort of connecting why, again, we're seeing these um, these summer gatherings where, um, you know, these, uh, like I was talking about before with these um, summer, with large gatherings being opportunities to both um, culturally and biologically reproduce, right? So we're getting together, marriages, there's births, there's celebrations, there's all those things. There's people who are coming from far and wide and coming together. Um, the mullet are doing that too. I mean, they're, they're migrating from the interior freshwater areas and they're going out into the sea. They're a major connective thread between, you know, the groups of people who are living in the interior of Florida versus the people who are living on the coast. Um, so people who are living in freshwater environments are eating mullet. People who are living on the coast are eating mullet. There's very few other places where you're going to see that same fish on the menu um, <laughs> in locations. So it's like a comfort food, would you say? Perhaps it's a comfort food. <laughs> um, you know, comfort food, you know, and comfort food, it really depends on how you define it. But I think in, in many ways, it's something that is stable, reliable, right? It's always going to be there. It's not something you have to wait for. It sort of gives you, um, I guess, solace that you can rely mm -hmm. on. You're not going to go hungry. It's a staple a lot of times. So, and it's something that, you know, again, will uh, maybe brings you know, people together. Maybe it's a locational thing. Um, so, you know, in, in that you have, you know, again, muller are not prevalent in, in the waters in the in summertime along the Gulf Coast. So in my research, um, you know, I was working a lot with the FWC and the, by far the lowest capture numbers of mullet are in the summertime, uh, mostly because the water's really hot mm -hmm. and they don't really enjoy that. So they're either hanging out in the springs where the water is a lovely 72 degrees all year round, um, or they're bedding down in these holes, essentially these karst holes that are in the, the topography, um, you know, within the Gulf Coast, uh, Gulf Coast. Um, smart mullet fisherman knows where to go in the summertime to get mullet. You or one of these karst deposits. So it's basically just a hole in the limestone where the water's a little bit deeper and the muck's a little bit thicker. Um, you know, mullet are detrivores. Um, they, they eat detritus. They eat stuff that's, you know, going to be on the sea floor. So 
they can go and bed down into these deep holes where the water is a little bit cooler, where there's plenty of food, but they're not going to be noticed. You're not going to know that there's mullet in the water because they're not out there jumping around like they normally do during the, the fall migration season. Richards Island is, you know, a fish trap that we've identified just, you know, two clicks south of Shell Mound, where the uh, basically, it looks like it is a, a landform that was uh, modified to become a fish trap. So there is an, uh, a seawall of emplaced oyster shell that, that borders the whole thing. So there's only one entrance, one exit. Um, you can't get out the other side. Um, and then there's a series of holes that actually it starts at, you know, the largest one is at the entrance. And then these um, sort of holes get smaller and smaller as you go back into the trap. And this is a type of design that, you know, is um, almost global, um, you know, so those perfect designs where if it's not broke, you don't fix it. It's something that works well for a, a fish trap style, especially for mullet. And what I think was happening there is that the, the Native Americans who were living in, in, in the Shell Mound landscape, whether at Shell Mound itself or were just living along the coast, they knew exactly where those mullet were going to be. And they were making a place where they were um, wanting those mullet to concentrate because they needed them for this particular feast. It wasn't like there weren't other fish available. There was plenty of other fish and plenty of other species that are more prevalent during the summer solstice. Um, so they had to go to a certain amount of effort to actually get that many mullet during that time of year. So they were making this fish trap specifically for mullet. Um, so like if you build it, they will come sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> And so what the, the trap actually does is mimic these, these karst holes that are uh, a favorite of mullet, especially during the warmer weather. <laughs> yeah, and so they're, they're concentrating these things, and so they're, they're stocked up on mullet for that particular party. For, you know, they're, maybe they were catering for their particular guests. Um, so it's not, you're not going to make a whole bunch of hot dogs for people who are vegetarians. You know, you might, <laughs> That's a good point. You know, you might want to focus on the comfort food where, you know, everyone's going to eat that. Yeah. If people are coming from far and wide, especially if they're coming from the interior, they're definitely familiar with mullet, um, as, as well as other fishes, of course. But, um, it seems to be the fish for gathering for sure. Yeah. Who would say no to, yeah, like fish dip and like yeah. hot wings, right? Like this, yeah. <laughs> that's a party in my book. That's a golf right. party. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Janessa, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Thank you so much. That was yeah, super, awesome. uh, super enlightening and how you kind of laid it out. It was, it was really great to how you lay it out and kind of tie it to this idea of the, the landform being this, you know, in itself is significant and the people flock to that because of it, rather than altering the space to fit their own cultural needs, you know, um, yeah. so that was really, really awesome. Well, thank you so much, Janessa. We appreciate you being on the materialist podcast. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks again, Janessa, for being on the Materialist Podcast. Her work is available all over the web. Just Google Dr. Janessa Mahar. You can find her on ResearchGate and other academic sites. She can also be found on the University of Florida Smathers Library website where you can email her there if you're interested in her work at Shell Mound 
or on her dissertation work on mass capture fishing practices during the woodland period here in Florida. On behalf of my co-host Becky O'Sullivan, thank you all so much, listeners, for tuning in. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and Spotify, as well as Instagram and Facebook. Please like us and share. Like us and share. That gets a lot of attention, especially on iTunes. We would love more social media interaction, so please give us a shout. You can reach us by email at materialistpodcast.gmail.com. Thank you so much to USF Department of Anthropology. Thank you to FPAN. If you would like more information on FPAN, please go to fpan.us. Intro music is Silver in the Age of Opulence by Have Gun Will Travel. You can find out more information about them on Facebook at HGWT Music or find them on the web at hgwtmusic.com. We're working on season three. We're taking our time because it's a pretty hefty subject we're digging into and we want to do it well and with respect. So uh, it'll be coming out here before too long. So keep your ears open to that. Um, And if you'd like us to cover anything special drop us a line uh you know how to reach us all right that's it we'll catch you all on the flippity flip 